Before we begin, just giving you an update on our new subscription. It's called Dave McWilliams Plus on Apple. You just double click, you get no ads, and you get me and John, pure and simple. And Mac, you get early access episodes. Did you know that? Sure. My day is made. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. To understand the economy... You have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by Acast. How are you doing there? It is time for the podcast. I hope all is well and you got over the sweltering heat and you're now reacclimatizing to the typical Irish summer of a little bit of clouds, a little bit of rain and lots and lots of soft days. John, how are you, my friend? I'm great, but you, you've gone from the, the frying pan into the fire now. You're in Croatia. I am in Croatia. I am now a melting. I am... Good man. There's a, there's a reason that redheads shouldn't really leave the island, John. It's a very simple reason. Is we're not really a ban on it we're in not the really... summertime. Redhead, no, sorry, you're redhead. You can't <laughs> be going anywhere. <laughs> we're not really biologically equipped for this carry-on. Although, although I'll tell you what I'm really getting into, John, is Italian disco music from the late 1970s. Okay, this is my this is my latest nice. fascination. Down here in Dalmatia, there's a sort of a there's almost like a time warp, and are the flares in the little, back in? in the, it's flares. It's mutton chops. It's long hair and it's, big collars, big shirt collars. It's pink jumpsuits. That's what I'm in, right? <laughs> and it's Adriano Celentano and Pino D'Angio and all these great Italians. We're actually going to talk about Italy. On Thursday's podcast, John, right? Because right, things actually. strangely happen there. But we're going to have a soundtrack, I think. We're going to have a soundtrack of really, really kitsch 1970s Italian disco, okay? The and kitscher, is, the better, Mac, as far as I'm concerned. The kitscher, the better. Yeah, no, it's all good. We're going to, we're going to, have, we're going to have Raffaella Cara and all these classic Italian ones. Oh my anyway, God. no, life is good. Life is You're good. You're going to be coming here. back from Croatia with a whole load of albums under your arms. Vinyl. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Vinyl. And it's all got that sort of 1970s, sort of slightly sort of spacey, acidy, trippy sort of look of it. All the vinyls the same. Yeah, all the covers. Yeah, yeah. And then on YouTube, if you want to watch the videos, they are unbelievably fantastic. It's choreographed Italian Saturday Night Fever. So you can imagine Saturday Night Fever with proper Italians, not John Travolta, pretend Italians, real <laughs> Italians. It's, it's, it's the real thing. It's the real thing. But let, we digress, John. We digress. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's, what's rocking your world back home? Uh, Divil a bit now. It's just, it was the big old, you know, heat wave. Everyone was talking about it that lasted about five minutes. 
Yeah, exactly. And, and we've we've moved on now. The rain is back. I put out a big laundry wash last night and I woke up this morning and it's drenched. That's ah. that's where my world is at at the moment. These, these, this is a thing of beauty. This makes me this makes me want to stay out here for the next few months. Yeah, but the other thing, Mark, after our podcast on Tuesday about China, the day after I noticed there was tanks on the streets in Beijing. <laughs> well, you know, we have this. Did we spark that or what? We have this extraordinary impact on global geopolitical affairs and geostrategic affairs. And the tanks in the streets was something I signaled to Xi. I said, listen, Xi, man, we're actually going to run this on Tuesday, but on Wednesday. No, what, what is actually happening in China, as, as we pointed out last week, is that the three-legged stool of Chinese growth, one of which was real estate, is now coming to a shuddering end. And what tends yeah. typically to happen when a real estate market goes pear-shaped, as we talked about, for example, in Lebanon, and actually has happened in Ireland in 2008, and we might get onto that a little bit as a reminder of what is going to happen in the Irish economy and why it's not going to be like 2008. But what actually happens, John, is that the banking system goes bad. Now, the first thing we know about the banking system is banks go bad from the inside out. Okay? And yes. The reason they go bad from yeah. the inside out is that there is always a huge incentive on the part of the executives to overlend. Why? Because their bonuses are dependent on income. And when things are going well, the more you lend, the more income you book. Okay? Mm, but what happens yeah. typically is the more income you book, the more lending you actually drive through the bank. Two things happen. One is the quality of your collateral tends to decrease because you end up lending to all sorts of shitty deals. Number yeah. one, just to get the money out the door. And two, in order to actually lend, you have to try and get a certain amount of money in the front door in order to lend out the back door, right? And that means that the Chinese banks would have offered very, very high rates of interest to potential depositors at mm. the top of the boom to attract in money so as they would actually comply with all sorts of sort of capital ratios, etc. Now... What happens when you offer very, very high rates of interest in the good times? They are predicated on you continuing to make money yeah. in real estate loans. Those real estate loans go sour. You can't cover those loans. You can't cover the interest. Then what you do is you say to the people who are depositing, oh, well, you remember we said we'd give you 19% or 10% or 8% or 10%, whatever it was, right? We're now only going to give you 4% up front and 6% in two or three years, right? That makes people panic. That makes people go to the bank. Once people go to the bank and they can't get all their money out at once, they tell their mates and suddenly you have a bank run and that's what we're going now. That's what we're seeing in China. And that's where yeah. the tanks are on the street. And, and, and they were saying that they've converted all their, everybody's deposits into investments. So you can't actually take them out. But hang on, the, the, the question though is that this is more or less where we were back in 2008. Banks Absolutely. had overlend, they didn't yeah. have the, the backup, all that kind of stuff. So, you know, have we not learned anything? Or has well, China no, the, not the, learned anything the, the, from this? The thing is that the great thing about studying economic history is we realize two things. One thing is that humans never learn. And the second thing is that everybody believes this time it's different, right? So ultimately, yeah. this is what's happening in China. Now, when you convert liquid deposits into illiquid investments, what you're in effect saying to people is, we don't have your money. What most people don't understand, and I can really appreciate this, like if you talk to our mums, for example, or who, who've never maybe studied economics or thought about it, when you put your money in a bank, in your head, 
you have this notion that it's there for safekeeping. Yes. Right? It's safe, it's secure, it's a deposit. But in fact, what you're actually doing legally is you are lending to a highly leveraged speculative institution, right? That's exactly what a bank is. And nice. in the case of China, those highly leveraged speculative institutions levered themselves up on real estate. And as we said last week, with 90 million vacant apartments in China, as I said, there's more vacant apartments in China than there are Germans in the whole world. Yes. You basically, you basically <laughs> have a classic, classic property unwinding. And the very first stage of that will tend to be the banks not being able to give back the money that depositors had. And this is a fundamental problem with banks all the time, John, is they, what's called, they, they borrow short and they lend long. So they borrow from you and me in the short term. So you, for example, give in your 100 euros or your 1,000 euros, and you can demand that back at any stage. Yeah. So they've always got a liability, a very, very toxic and incendiary liability on one side of the balance sheet, right? Which is the money they've got to give back to you at any one time. Mm. However, they lend that money usually out in a 30-year mortgage. So they rapidly create an illiquid asset on the other side of the balance sheet. And this is all fine as long as the treasury in the back of the bank can play the game. But if, for example, you, John Davis, decides I want my money back, they can't sell that mortgage to generate the liquidity to give you the cash. And unless the central bank continue to bail them out, which happens in many, many countries, yeah. they go bust really quickly. And but I the central bank is supposed to, I mean, the role of the central bank is to be keeping an eye on these fellas anyway, to go, whoa, 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 hang on a second. You're a bit over leveraged here. You're... You're lending well, too much or whatever. You know? the, yeah, but we, what we know is that central banks in booms uh, tend to play golf with bankers, right? True. And, and, and then makes, the boom gets boomier. The boom gets boomier. And then what happens is, so the central bank is always going to be incredibly lax in a boom. Then when things crash, the central bank pendulum swings and they become unbelievably tight in a bust. So basically, the central bank goes from a, an organization that was feeding the alcoholic to Alcoholic Anonymous yeah. in one move, right? So basically, it was, goes from being the bartender to, right? Imagine that, right? Just giving out booze all to everybody, right? Yeah, yeah, let's have a look. And then it, it certainly morphs into some sort of AA consultant and says, no, you can't drink anymore. And what actually happens then is yeah. the economy... And everyone attracts. has a big sore head in them. Everyone's a big sore head in them. They can't pay their debts and you get defaults and all that stuff. This is what is happening in China right now. So, so let me ask you a question. You know, you talk about the 90 million vacant properties. That's a massive overcalculation or miscalculation of demand. So yeah. how come the Chinese got it so wrong? Well, many years ago, John, I came up with this expression, ghost estates, right? And I never knew yes. it was going to catch on, right? And I remember it was coming from, I was driving back from Mayo, in 2005, and I noticed all these estates being built in these tiny little villages in the middle of nowhere. And I thought to yeah. myself, who's ever going to live in these places? And I remember it was like the Marie Celeste. Do you remember that uh, ship that was found? The ship was perfect, but there was nobody yes. on it. Yeah, and that's yeah. What, that, it was like a ghost ship. And then I got this, these are ghost estates. They'll never, ever be lived in, right? That's what happens in a property, the tail end of a property, a mania. People just throw up buildings all over the gaff without any real understanding of who's going to live in them. Exactly the same thing. The ghost estates the in China. million of them. So they're kind of ghost cities. They're kind of ghost countries in China. We had little <laughs> ghost estates, but they've got ghost countries. And, and that's going to take a long time, particularly 
as the Chinese population is falling. That's the key. So when your population yeah. is falling, you're going to end up with a surplus of apartments that could go on for decades. Now, all of this, the Chinese are trying to manage. But what is interesting for us, John, is that the legacy of what happened in China is going to have profound long-term consequences for the rest of the world for a very long, long time. So the legacy of the last 40 years of globalization, Chinese coming into the labor force and supply chains and all that was made in China. The legacy of made in China is going to take many, many decades to wash itself through the global economic and financial system. But what I wouldn't mind focusing on now is what's actually going on in Ireland right now. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Okay, so what is going on in Ireland at this stage? You know, are we are we going to be at the tail end of this and and get a the kind of whiplash effect. Well, in actual fact, yeah, in actual fact, it's not really anything to do with China. What is going on in Ireland right now is fascinating. A builder, a mutual friend of ours, John, who will remain nameless, who asked to remain nameless, uh, and he will, therefore, we will acknowledge that and respect it. I was talking to him the other day, that very man, that very, very man. Uh, I was talking to him the other day. In fact, I got a text from him in the middle of the night, so he'd obviously had a few gargles on board. And... Uh, <laughs> And then I rang him the next day and he said, look, he said, Maka, this is what's going on in the trade. I said, what? He said, basically what's happening is lots and lots of jobs are being pulled by contractors. So he says basically that anybody, because of the huge increase in inflation in materials Mm. and in, so everything from steel to wood to everything, right? Because of supply chain problems and getting things like getting kitchen appliances, getting pieces of material, and of course, labor. He said that there's no value at all now in any sort of mid-level construction in Ireland. And what he's seen as a builder is that lots and lots of clients, let's say kind of upper-end clients who might be buying houses, refurbishing them, so they have money in their back pocket. Maybe yeah. these refurbs Everybody are maybe, seems to be doing that at the moment. Yeah, so like maybe these, these refurbs are like a million quid or 700 grand or whatever. He's basically saying that the budgets that they 
jotted down last year, let's say 700 grand for a job, is mm. only now getting the proportion of the job. So many of these clients have no real urgency. They don't have to do the job. So they're pulling, they're canceling. They're yeah. basically saying to the subcontractors, no, we're, we're going to wait until next year. So he said there's, there's a dynamic in the, in the construction industry, which is the following. Huge jobs like the Children's Hospital or Intel Fabs and these sort of ones that have a timeline are going yeah. ahead, irrespective of and pushing through the inflation. Yeah. But he said any other job, which he reckons is about half the industry, which is predicated on somebody saying, do you know what, do I need to build today? Do I need to do this refurbishment? Do I actually need to throw good money off after bad, they're actually stopping. So he, what he's saying is that what they're seeing on the ground up in construction is this tsunami of cancellations. And he said, of course, what happens, and this is how recessions happen, and this is a fascinating thing about economics. Like, we're like maybe actually we'll, we'll this, in parenthesis, this, this podcast will be, why do recessions happen, right? Yeah. What, he, what he says, and it's true, is that basically all the subbies then talk to each other, all the clients then talk to each other, Certain person cancelling prompts another person to cancel. They talk to somebody else. And you get this from what was an initially one or two outliers. You get this extraordinary surge of cancellations. And he said across the building industry, what he believes is that the winter is going to be appalling in the industry in Ireland because all jobs are cancelled because people are waiting for prices to fall. But in the meantime, what could happen then is that people, while projects are on hold, People go off and do other stuff. So even when prices do fall, then there's not going to be the workers. The trades guys well, that, are going that, to be moved be on, either move country or move job or career or whatever. And we'd have this job shortage again. I think that could happen. I think that could happen. I don't think it's going to be half as extreme or anything as extreme as the case in 2008, 2010, which I'll go back to in a sec. But why? You actually got mass, mass emigration of a whole blue-collar class in Ireland, and a service class, but mainly a blue-collar class. But why wouldn't class. that happen now? Because in 2008, we experienced what was called, what's called in economics a balance sheet recession. So what actually happened is yeah. because the balance sheet was so leveraged to property, that on the asset side of the balance sheet, you had houses, and on the liability side of the balance sheet, this is the national balance sheet, this is the balance sheet of all the people, you had debt. And once house prices started to fall by 10, 15, 20%, and then down to 50%, right? The asset side of people's balance yep. sheet was down 50%. But the debt side stayed the same. And because interest rates were positive, the debt side actually increased. So you had what's called a balance sheet recession. You had the collective balance sheet of the country collapses, which means right. that it takes ages and ages to get out of that because you have to Basically, you have to wait until house prices start to rise again, which is what happened in Ireland. But that takes mm. years, not months. We're not looking at that now. What we're looking at now is something much more akin to a short recession, a not a, not a particular shock, a creeping short recession. Explain where, that a bit more. So how recessions happen, it's, it's fascinating. People always feel that there has to be a big shock to the economy for a recession mm. to happen. But what we don't appreciate is that basically economics, as we say at the very, very top of the show every week, John, is about human nature. And humans are a social, playful, gossipy, chatty animal. And what tends to happen is that humans infect each other with confidence and infect each other with depression. 
okay, when it comes to the economic cycle. Mm. So if you imagine the growth of an economy is, let's say, a steady state of 3 or 4%, okay? And the reason the growth of the economy is 3 or 4% is that's typically the rate of increase in the population plus the rate of increase in productivity, okay? But around that straight line, you have these peaks and troughs and peaks and troughs, right? And those peaks and troughs and peaks and troughs are what we call upswings and downturns, right? And that's actually what the economic cycle is. So as I've always said, the economic cycle is nothing more than human nature. And what we're seeing now is that having been very optimistic about the future about two or three months ago, people are now becoming less optimistic. They're pulling jobs. But because everybody chats and talks and gossips, and because humans actually, despite economics saying that humans are rational, etc., most humans not only are not rational, we're irrational. And not only are we irrational, we don't really know our own mind at all. We're unbelievably influenced by the last mm-hmm, yeah. conversation, right? That, that's yeah, what we yeah, are, yeah. right? Of course, yeah, so, yeah. So despite the fact that all our philosophy and humanism says that we are individuals, you go back to Rousseau and all these characters, right? When they're trying to figure out humanity and they're trying to figure out we are individuals driven by free will, which is a... Well, you go back to the life of Brian, Mac. Well, so you are all individuals. Yeah, we're all I'm not. I know, I know. Actually, it's funny. When I was in Lebanon and I was in Baalbek, right, in this religious place, okay, and it was being taken very, very seriously, and people were talking in hushed tones about, you know, the Nazarene and talking about <laughs> holy men. And all yeah. I had is this image in my head when I was doing these pieces to camera of English lads with tea towels on their heads pretending to be Arabs. <laughs> And Jesus, or even before Jesus, <laughs> pretending to be Nazarenes and Jews and everything. And I said, like, he's not the Messiah. <laughs> All that's right, you know. So I was, I was trying to do these really serious pieces to camera in front of these Roman runes. The sun was going down. It was sunset. And I was trying to be evocative about the oranges of money. And all I had in my head was images of, you know, John Cleese with the tea towel in his head. <laughs> But let I digress. I digress. Classic let, movie. Love it. One of my favorites. No, it's it's just it's just it just makes me laugh and laugh and laugh. And what makes me laugh even more for younger listeners, you will not realize that that movie was banned in Ireland. Yes, yes, it was, it was. banned yeah. in Ireland. Like, yeah. think about how mad this country was. Like, yeah. think about how much of the blasphemy of it all. The blasphemy of it all. So again, I know if you're a younger listener, you might not be able to get your head around it. But the country that John and I were brought up in banned the life of Brian. Yeah. It was actually banned. And what it led to was an extraordinary black market in Dunleary off the mailboat in VCRs with tapes <laughs> of the life of Brian. Or if you're unlucky, you get a Betamax. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You could never play it. Exactly. But that's the beautiful thing about economics is that you ban something and the law of unintended consequences is that something else happens. And for example... In the, in the case of banning the life of Brian, the economy evolved, it adjusted, and what we got was in our, our entire road of Windsor Park had more copies of the life of Brian than at any other stage because it was banned, which is like the beautiful <laughs> thing about economics. Anyway. Yeah, so true. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's like, as, as, as Tarek de Brockham said in the Inish Man piece about the Irish language, I said, what would the best thing you could do for the Irish language? And Tarek says, just ban the fucking thing. And you'd... <laughs> And you would have this huge thing. But let's get back to economics. Yes, economics. economics. That's what we're here for. So the the reason recessions happen is because the social animal influences each other. And we behave much more like a herd than like a free-thinking, sovereign individual. So what happens on the upside is we get giddy together. And on the downside, we get depressed together. Mm. And how this manifests itself is in prices fall very, very quickly. People increase their savings. So the savings ratio of the country goes up. 
people temper their spending. And of course, what happens if you're tempering your spending, that's okay, John. But if everybody's tempering their spending at the same time, that causes demand in the economy to crater. And therefore, you get what looks like a recession. And of course, this plays plays out. But as long as the key metrics are not really out of whack, what you'll tend to have is what I would call these kind of soft recessions. And I think that's what we're going into now. So, okay, sorry, just explain to me, what are these key metrics? Right, so for a country, for a what I would call a liberal, social democratic, advanced country, like any country in the northwest of Europe and, and the United States, although the United States as liberal and social democratic might be a bit of a stretch as a description these <laughs> days, but we can come back to that in a sec. Yes. Basically, the key metric, the first one is debt-to-income ratios right? Okay. Which we know is debt to GDP or GNP ratios. The basic rule of thumb, John, is if they are over 100%, your growth rate has to be higher than your real rate of interest. Okay. And I'll explain all that to you. Imagine that your debt is 100% of your income. So that means that if, let's say, for example, the rate of interest is 4% and your debt is 100, you've got to pay back four euros per year, right? Just to keep everything... Yep, yep, Still, yep. that means that your revenue has to be more than 4% per year, more than four euros per year. So your growth rate is your revenue rate. So your growth rate has to be greater than the real interest rate as long as your interest rate, or as long as the debt GDP ratio is 100. So that's a rule yep. of thumb, right? Luckily in Ireland, our debt to GDP ratio is much, much lower as a country. Even though our outstanding debt is quite high, just our GDP is high and our GMP is high. So what is that then, Mac? Well, our debt to GDP ratio in Ireland is actually very low. It's probably, uh, and I know people find this very, very hard to believe because actual government spending has increased to about 100 billion euros a year from around 80 billion before the pandemic. So there's been a massive increase in government right. spending. But there's also been a massive increase in GDP. So the aggregate figure, I think, is around 59, 60, 61%. It's low. It's very, very right. low. Okay. Right, okay. Right. Because so that's just a load of headroom to to play with. Well, it means that there won't be a balance. Uh, there, there is basically there won't be a, a bond crisis in Ireland, right? Other right. European countries are not in the same position. Uh, also, household debt. Irish people have been paying down debt at a phenomenal rate since the end of the Celtic Tiger. So right. at the at the end of the Celtic Tiger, our debt rates were really really high. Our household debt was incredibly high. Our fragility in terms of the amount of money and the amount of debt people were carrying, and the term structure of that debt, i.e., when it had to be repaid, was all wrong. Was all pointing towards mass debt restructuring, which is actually what we actually got. So if you look at those key metrics from 2008, mm. and you look at the fact that there's not going to be a balance sheet recession here in terms of house prices aren't going to fall precipitously, like 50%, as they did 2008 to 2013, what we're looking at is a much shorter recession because those key metrics are in better shape. Now, mm. lots and lots of people tend only to look at the outstanding debt figure. They don't look at the outstanding debt as a relationship to income art, assets, and all these other things, which count enormously. So my own sense is that, yes, there's going to be a slowdown. Yes, we're going to feel it in the construction industry. Yes, we're going to feel it in retail sales. But ultimately, it's going to be much, much slower, probably not unlike the recession we had in the early 90s. We had a recession from 91 to 93, which was extremely shallow, particularly coming against the background of the recessions of the 80s, which were very, very deep. 
And that's what I think we're probably looking at. So it's a more of a benign outlook. It's not sort of a, we hit the buffers and everything collapses. It's a much more of a reassessment of what's going on. And that's what I think is probably on the cards for the next couple of quarters. Okay, so I understand that. I understand the debt to GDP ratio bit, but what, what are the other kind of critical metrics that, that you're talking about? Well, like another critical metric would have been at the, at the top of the Celtic Tiger, Ireland was running a very, very large current account deficit. And basically mm. what that means is that we were spending more than we had. We, were, we had a, a living standard that was rented, not earned, as I always say. And ultimately, in order to finance that, so for example, in 2007, there were more Mercedes sold in <laughs> Ireland per head than in Germany, right? And you fucking love that, don't you? And you see, and the problem with the Merck, right, we know in Ireland that what a Mercedes is, it's basically your opportunity to give the two fingers to the neighbor you can't stand, right? Yeah. Right, you buy a big fuck off Merck and it's like, nah, 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 nah. It's whipping it, your schlong out. It's whipping your schlong out. Now, that schlong, that mechanical and metallic schlong, John, was made in Germany, right? Now, think about what happened. Was Paddy bought German cars, which were financed by loans given to Paddy by German banks. So at the end of the day, Paddy ended up owning bits of Germany, but owing bits of Germany back to Germany, Right. <laughs> And that's actually what happened. So that's a way of looking at the trade deficit and the current account deficit. Again, uh, this time around, the cash flow position of the nation is much, much stronger. There's a trade surplus, there's current account surplus, all that sort of stuff. So when you look at those sort of, what you're trying to do, John, what we're doing on the podcast is we're giving out for free what Moody's and Poor would charge a million euros for, which is how do you figure out sustainability of a country? Like if we were the Department of Finance and we rocked up at Moody's and Poor, we get a million quid for this shit. Should, right? should we not be changing our business plan then? To just moody and slightly poor. <laughs> moody and, and grumpy. And grumpy. But so what we're doing is that, but this, so this is what these extraordinary uh, geniuses at the rating agencies do for a living. They just yeah. go out with these metrics and they, they tick the boxes. So basically, you've got an Excel spreadsheet, you just plonk in the bits and pieces and you say, all will be fine. Now, all will be fine is never enough. And the reason is that economics is never static. It's always dynamic. Yes. It's interrelated, it's correlated, and it's contagious, right? So the reason 2008 became interrelated, correlated, and contagious was the very vector at the center of the system that was supposed to be robust was fragile, and that was the banking system, right? And the banking system was a mess in 2008, as I was warning for feckin' years, right? Simply because of what we talked about in China at the start of the program, right? If you keep lending and lending and lending and lending, you end up lending more and more to shittier and shittier projects. And at the end of the day, you end up lending a huge amount. You might as well be actually throwing the money into a big hole in the ground. Yeah, it comes back and bites you on the ass, yeah. And again, even though the Irish banking system would be one of our major targets on the podcast, right, as a part of the economy that doesn't work, it has been shackled in the last 10 years. And despite itself, it's now in a position that I think the banking system is reasonably okay. I mean, I saw, I saw the AIB was closing down all sorts of yes, branches. Yes, but they backtracked on it. They backtracked on it. Yeah, They yeah, were yeah. backing brave and then they backed out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Anyway, let us move along. So, Matt, can I just go back to the construction part of it for a second? Yeah, yeah. Because what's in the back of my head and what worries me is the fact that we have a plan, apparently, to build 35,000 plus homes a year for the next whatever. 
But if construction is prices are shooting up and people are pulling back and getting out of the business, that plan is, you know, going to go by the wayside, surely, which has well, all the implications and knock on effects of that. No, it's, it's very clear that what we're seeing is lots and lots of shovel ready operations are ready for shovels, but shovels aren't going into the ground. Shovel ready. I like that. Yes. That's like a Boris Johnson, oven ready. But yeah, we're shovel ready. Shovel shovel ready is 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 an expression for when the when the site is cleared, when everything is set to go, when the finance right. is in place, when the well, you know, when the planning is in place, when the subcontractors are all in place, you're you're shovel ready. Yeah. And lots and lots of developments. I mean, we are building a lot in Ireland at the moment, right? It's yeah. very clear, it's very clear anecdotally if you just drive around any of our cities, there's a lot of stuff going on. But you're absolutely right. If the marginal small construction player is worried if lots and lots of jobs are not being done the state has a choice now i've always believed that the provision of houses should be provided by the state not unlike the provision of free education so in the same way as it would be bizarre for us to think now that the introduction of free schools in the 1960s could be reversed, right? And in the 1960s, when we introduced free schools, secondary schools, lots and lots of people said, oh, you can't afford this, right? We can't mm. be doing this. Yeah. I happen to believe that the housing market should have two characteristics. One is at the lower end, free public or very, very cheap public housing subsidized by the state, like free education. And then in the middle and the upper end, you can have the private housing market where people choose to pay higher prices. But it's the idea that people should be allowed the possibility, the possibility of having a roof over their head. And that possibility has to be actually substantiated by the state. Now, mm. it seems to me that, therefore, that every recession in the housing market is an opportunity for the state to build more, right? That yeah. actually when the when the housing market is going at full tilt, the state probably is elbowed out of the game by the private sector. But when the economy is actually slowing down, now is the opportunity for the state to build more, right? Precisely because the private sector isn't building. And to put the cost of this on the national debt, we spoke of the national debt earlier on, it's not that high. Yeah. And to provide homes for people. Somebody once said that the role of a leader is to understand the anxiety of the people and do something about it. Yeah. The anxiety of Irish people is more or less caught up in housing. Most of the other things in the economy and the society are moving ahead reasonably straightforwardly and at a reasonably decent clip. Housing is not. And that's really where I think the state should say, okay, if we have a coming recession in housing, we will take up the flack because we will actually take those tradesmen, those subcontractors, those builders who are no longer being employed in the private sector, and we will build houses. I mean, the way I look at it, it's a bit like, for example, building public infrastructure. Once you start building public infrastructure, you should never stop, right? Do you remember that yeah. big, do you remember that big feckin, uh, corkscrew of a thing that built the port tunnel? Yes. We should yeah. never have actually given that back to whoever we borrowed it from, the corkscrew. I think we borrowed it from the Dutch, right? Right. Uh, we should have just kept it. Just keep just drill loads of holes everywhere. Just drill loads of tunnels and build a metro. Just keep doing it. Keep doing it. Because once the interesting thing is once you start, the cost we'll end up of, like an Emmental cheese. Well, I mean, most 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 proper 
cities are Emmental cheese underneath them, right? <laughs> That's what they are, okay? You know? But if you think about it, once you start, right, the cost of production falls dramatically, but also more importantly, as you continue to build, the nimbyism falls away, right? Nimbyism is all about new things, right? Yes. But if you're continuing to build, you're continuing to, as you say, bore these holes under the ground, willy-nilly building metros, for example, right? Yeah. What you actually do is you break the back of nimbyism after a while, and then nimbyism becomes regarded as actually antisocial behavior because what you can see is the wealth of the society and the utility of the citizens is increasing every time you build a new metro or every time you build a new train station or a, a new train line. So, John, what I'm saying is, right, you are right about the Emmentaler cheese approach to urban development. But once you start building public infrastructure, you should never stop. And exactly the same goes for public housing. Never stop building public housing. Why? Because yeah. there will never, ever be an end to the appetite for public accommodation because our population is increasing all the while. I mean, the one thing we know about economics is the easiest thing to forecast is your population. Why? Because you can count the number of babies being born every yes. day, right? It's yes. really easy. Yeah. And you can count the number of immigrants coming in, you can count the number of people dying, and you can subtract and add, and you get an absolutely spot-on, really flawless forecast of what the population is going to be in 10 years' time, 20 years' time, 30 years' time. And as a result of that, public investment and public housing should never, ever go into reverse. It should always go forward. On Thursday, we're starting a new little initiative, which is to reward our Patreons for backing us over the last couple of years, for you putting your hand in your pocket and stumping up to keep John and I sane and <laughs> slightly beyond bankruptcy. What we're doing is every week on our Patreon site, there are Dozens of questions come in. We try to answer them. But from now on, we're going to answer them on the podcast. So that is patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. Sign up if you're not a member. If you are a member of the gang, by all means, anything that's on your mind, anything that's annoying you, issues you want explained, clarified, just jot them down. And every Thursday, we will answer some of your questions. Thanks so much. Talk to you Thursday. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.